Pod Conduit Media. Kevin, are you going to be sick during our wedding? Quites Baleavit, qui regnum tuum destruxit. Kevin! Quitivating the avid. Advassa to a dairy boot. Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashley Mowers, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, Episode 3, Dream a Little Dream of Me. I am joined by two majestic co-hosts, Ben Childers. Hello, hello. And Sean Dotson. Hey, what's up, everybody? On each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through five sections. First, we'll summarize that week's episode and provide our hot takes. Then we get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. We wrap up by connecting the TV show back to the comics and then offering our final thoughts. All right, enough stalling. Let's hop into the summary. Ashley? All right, so in Dream a Little Dream of Me, we are finally introduced to their interpretation of John Constantine, who is in the show now, Joanna Constantine. We're first introduced as she enters her own nightmare, which is a memory of a botched job. And then she is on another job where she encounters Mad Hetty, a favorite character, who warns her that Morpheus, Dream, is coming to find his sand. She then performs an exorcism in a place that is definitely not a church. We'll come back to that. And meets Morpheus to help him recover his sand, which has been taken by an ex-girlfriend. As they happen upon Rachel, the ex-girlfriend, she is, Joanna is taken into a dream herself where she thinks that she has made up with a girlfriend and then finds herself confronted by her own failure. She then actually sees the reality of Rachel's world and her addiction to this dream sand, where she has to convince Morpheus to then heal or put to sleep this girlfriend peacefully into a final state of rest. Afterwards, they have a dialogue. Joanna exhorts to Matthew, who is a raven companion that's been forced on Morpheus by Lucian to take care of him because he needs it. And they wrap it up by bamfing straight to hell. In the B plot, we have John D meeting with his mother, Ethel Cripps, as they argue about what to do about the ruby and the amulet. Ethel forces John to take the amulet much to his dismay. She then rapidly ages and dies. As a guard comes in to look in on them, the guard believes that John has killed his own mother, not taking a very good look at the state of her. 
Despite John's protestations to not shoot at him, to let him go freely, the amulet does its job and protects him as the guard shoots at him. The guard is then uncreated, I would say, as opposed to destroyed. And then John walks freely out where he is greeted by the Corinthian. He's given a jacket and then he leaves. Thanks, Ashley. We definitely see a lot of propulsive action happening, at least in the A plot and at the end of the B plot. (laughs) So let's get to our hot takes. Sean, let's start with you. What do you want to talk about first? Okay. This one is, it's a little difficult for me because I didn't really connect with this episode and I'm not 100% sure if it's because they've replaced almost everything I find interesting about the source material uh, for this show or because there are legit issues about the episode itself. And I don't mean swapping John Constantine and Joanna Constantine. Like, that makes total sense to me. No problems whatsoever there. It makes sense in the TV show format. Just like I'm pretty sure they won't have the Martian Manhunter and Mr. Miracle in Mm. future Mm -hmm. episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are DC superheroes who appeared in the book. And if it is because of the show itself, then what is it? Is it the pacing, the editing, the effects, the acting, the story itself? I honestly don't know. And it may be some combination of all those things. Or again, maybe I'm just being a hater and I should like try to enjoy it for what it is instead of <laughs> criticizing it for what it's not. But again, I, I find myself facing disappointment that the rough edges of those early issues of the series have kind of been smoothed and polished away. Especially because I was expecting a horror episode. And the subject matter of the episode is horrific. But I don't think the show successfully communicated a sense of fear or unease or dread within the episode. And so many of the scenes from the comic that should work really well in live action were left out entirely. That said, there was a thematic coherence to the episode that I thought was really nicely done. Uh, This was an episode about relationships and the tension between our need to connect with others, you know, to accept help and to give it, and the risk inherent in that. The fear that someone will let us down or use what they know to hurt us. Every character in the story, Morpheus, Joanna, Ethel, and John, reflected and commented on this theme in a way I find to be you know, somewhat elegant. So, all in all, I have mixed feelings on this episode, and I'm looking forward to this conversation helping me figure out exactly what I think. Thanks, Sean. Uh, spicy as always. Mm-hmm. We appreciate it. Uh, for, for my hot take, uh, it is actually going to be, I think, my first small criticism. I think I've generally been very uh, supportive <laughs> of the show so far. And it's just when when John leaves. All right? Join the, us in the dark side, Ben. The, the first guard shoots him and then is uncreated. The second two guards shoot him are uncreated. Totally get that. He has a badge, goes down the elevator. I'm fine with literally all of that. But then he just kind of strolls through the lobby and like scans a badge like he's at the Empire State Building to leave. And I'm just like, the secure, I'm not concerned with the show. It is the security at that building. Mm -hmm. needs to do such a better job. I feel like if the person who is guarding one of the most, you know, you know, unstable, valuable prisoners that they have, it really feels like, at the end of this, it really felt like his mom had built a very special prison just for him 
inside a regular office building, which could be true. <laughs> if you are trying to hide like a, you know, your son who it sounds like was like a mass murderer, um, that might be a really good place to actually hide him. Uh, but I just think that the building needs to tighten up its security protocols after this one. And yeah. they'll probably need like to hire some additional cleaning staff also. Certainly. <laughs> Ashley, what about you? Yeah, you know, I, I like my Rachel Moody clean, but my episode's dirty, and it did not give me that. It was just like all of the all of the gritty punk vibes of John Constantine were completely stripped away. It's like they bleached London, and it was really uncomfortable to see. Like I liked what I liked about Dream a Little Dream of Me as an issue was the character that London played, and you didn't really get that here. You got some, you know cool locations uh, but generally speaking you couldn't recognize like an actual place so there was no groundedness to me as to where we were and as far as where the B plot fit in time wise it I couldn't tell just how long this conversation was going for compared mm -hmm. to literally everything else that was happening so it gave me such a cool intro but then it just kind of slowly just sunk into the depths for me and not in like a fun hell-based way, but in a just sad, tragic Titanic way. <laughs> oh, do you hear that car horn out there? Hold on one sec. Oh, Chaz, he's here. He's here for us. That's why he wasn't in the episode. He needs, oh, we gotta go. We got, we'll be right back. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, yeah, sounds like someone fell. <laughs> Gotcha! Why are you doing this? This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Some angels for effect, but ultimately mm. just you know, the, the monarchy. So you've, you've got, you know, King William the third and Queen Mary the second and George the first, but you definitely don't have Christ. <laughs> well, those, they were all heads of the church of, of England, right? So, I mean, is it kind of, you know, I, yeah, sure. Uh, maybe. But I mean, this also was intended as an eating space originally, not as oh. a meeting space for like big, uh, liturgical events. Uh, so it's just really funny. I was looking at it. I was like, that's not a church. It's definitely not a church. This isn't even like a transept. Uh, where are we? Cause it looked so familiar to me mm, and I was mm. trying to place it. And so finally I was able to, to find the location listings and yeah, so it's a beautiful space. I can understand why they chose it. Cause generally speaking, the average viewer is not going to be me. <laughs> <laughs> frankly and so they're not going to be like mm, 
I don't know where you would have a processional in that space, but <laughs> because it's such a dramatic space, I can understand why they'd be like, yeah, close enough. It, it looks majestic and Americans won't, uh, won't know. They won't question it. It just looks old and there's a pretty painting inside. Uh, so I, again, I get it. I do get it from like a scene setting standpoint, but, um, but if anyone else is paying attention, that's definitely not a church. I feel so betrayed. <laughs> you, you should. You I, should. I can fam. no longer suspend my disbelief here. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for us, Sean? So we start the show. We're in the Casanova Club. Presumably, it's still in Newcastle because that's you know in the comic that's where the Casanova Club was. But I just kind of wonder, like, what is going on here? What did we miss? Because she walks in. There's something going on behind the door, meets the little girl, Astra, who has called Joanna there because something's gone wrong. But her father, Logue, is just like, he's just drunk and summoning demons, right? Like, yes. that's what's happening? Yes. As one does. Yeah. That's, it, it, it just, it felt, I, it felt a little incomplete for me. I would have liked a little more sense of what was happening. I mean, I got it. You, yeah. you have more background on what that whole thing actually was comic book wise, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that would be disappointing if it has to be condensed. Yeah, and I'm trying so hard to keep, to keep it separate. But if sure. I can, if I can um, just sort of go off on a, on, a, on a short tangent here. Short tangent. <laughs> this um, tragedy at the root of the Constantine character this character's failure at this club, this total botch job where this little girl was killed. Um, for the John Constantine character in the book, this was a, a, a plot reveal that took about three years to get to. Well, and it's something that we don't know in the, in the Sandman comic. We it's just, something we do not know. We yeah. just kind of hear it alluded to in the comic and... Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas here they decided to show us part of it. It did feel like there was the the sort of compression there and leading with that bit of information. It's hard to say that maybe it's it's not just because of my familiarity with the source material, but it felt a bit unearned overall. Like I I almost would have preferred that experience to have been kept off screen and to have mm. to communicate you know, this Joanna's traumatic past through like acting and through illusion. I think sure. I personally would have preferred that because I'm not sure any of the Casanova club scenes were effective enough to really communicate the import of that event to the character. But I also wanted to know coming back from my little, my little rant there. And that's that for Sean's rant, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back from that, I would like to know, and maybe Ashley, you can speak to this. Is there just a book called Satanic Rituals where you can just that you can just find and start doing some satanic <laughs> rituals after like a long night of partying? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, there, there is the Roman rite that has liturgical settings specifically for exorcism and there are different types of exorcisms. So yes, there is a book. It's called the Rituale Romanum. Um, well, so that so one comes up in the, in the, 
you know, with Joanna, right? Like, that's what she's holding. Yeah, but that's what she's holding. In the opening scene in the club, dude is on the floor, passed out, and he's just got a book next to him called just Satanic Rituals. Mm-hmm. And so that's the one I was wondering. Is there, like, any... What I thought... I don't know. What I thought may have been happening there, and this maybe be missing the, the thread, is that Joanna is obviously a magic user, and that Logue was essentially, like, meddling in something that he, like, shouldn't be meddling in. Yeah. And, you know, this is almost like, I don't know, we were seeing the book from, like, her point of view, and so I'm wondering if it was actually, like, maybe it was written in, like, a different script, but because we're in her point of view, we see it, like, translated for us so we can actually read it, maybe. Because you're right, it's probably just not called, like, Satanic Rituals. Or maybe it's one of those things where, like, somebody, like, through like, because you were talking about this in in our very first episode of the read along with the uh, um, the grimoires, so mm-hmm. maybe somebody just made this, called it satanic rituals. It actually doesn't do anything except they just happen to get lucky on one of the recipes or spells, and that's the one that Logue decided like to do that night. And because he was drunk and was slurring a bit, maybe that's the thing is he was like slurring. And so like the spell actually isn't correct, but because of how he slurred it, it actually made the spell happen. Uh, Cause you're right. Like to me, it, it, it's one of those two things I feel like. Yeah. Or this is just, you know, the, uh, uh, a reprint of a, a volume, you know, a medieval volume written in Latin or something, but it's hard to, you got to, it's the mass well, market paperback sort right, of. Right. I was you gotta sell that in say, airports, right? They're they're probably most ni- likely not going to to sell really thin paperback versions of that. Uh, <laughs> our our uh, producer Pat has noted that the Satanic Bible was written by Anton Lavey in 1969. Now this was a little thin to be that. It is not uncommon though, especially. Um, for that time, wait, whatever time we're in, I guess, you know, Constantine is timeless, I suppose. But I remember, especially growing up, there were a lot of print productions of just like various little pamphlets and tomes of like, this is how you summon ghosts. This is how you summon demons. Oh, you want to be a pagan now? This is how you make a really botched job of a dream catcher uh, with no historical elements whatsoever. Like no one's done any reading. No one's done any history. It's kind of like those, those goof books I was telling you about in that first episode we've made. Um, So I had interpreted it as just one of those sort of, zines that they used to issue uh, of like, like you were saying, Ben, they probably made some stuff up, thought, oh yeah, I know a little bit of Latin from grammar school and then happened to get just like one of them right and just goofed. And that's why, you know, Logue was just like, oh yeah, we were just having some fun because to them, this was totally just a goof, but ultimately they managed to get one thing right, which means it was so very wrong. All right, all right, fair enough, fair enough. Before we move on real quick, I did want to note the posters in that club as she's walking down are so good. One of them is for mucous membrane. And then there's one as she's walking into that, that, like bar area that says run now. And it made me laugh so hard. It was like the perfect horror element (laughs) in that regard, just like very cheesy, very campy. But the lettering looked really familiar to me. I couldn't find this. So someone, if someone or Sean can tell me, they almost, it almost looked like they were done by Todd Klein. Like the lettering looked so familiar to me, but maybe it was just someone like making their best effort at Todd Klein. Very cool. Thanks for noticing that, Ashley. Yeah. All right. For our second scene. 
In the church, the priest tells Joanna that she needs her to perform an exorcism on a British princess. Joanna, using the ritual Romanum and dressed as a priest, pretends to marry the possessed princess and her football-playing beau. As Joanna speaks Latin from the text, the demon Algalaeth is pulled out of the footballer's body. Dream appears, and Algalaeth tries to strike a deal with him regarding his missing helm. Joanna continues the spell to banish Algalaeth back to hell while refusing to listen to Dream commanding her to stop. All right, Sean, what do you got? So, okay, we learn a lot here between the initial meeting of Matt Hetty and Joanna meeting Sandman, going into this hall, non-church hall, right? Church in the TV show. Church in the TV show. show. Yeah, it's definitely a church. <laughs> yeah, and essentially doing a, doing a, you know, a very Constantine sort of thing, which is like tricking a demon. That's mm. like core Constantine there. So, you know... An effective introduction. I did I did feel like when I was talking earlier about pacing issues and things like that, I think maybe, or, or you know, just some s- strange elements that never quite came together for me. I was thinking of this scene a little bit. There's stuff I like in it. I like the actual demon, Al- Algalaeth. Is that is that the one? Mm-hmm. Algalaeth. Uh, yeah, Al. Algalaya. That is a mouthful. Props yeah. to uh, Tom Sturridge <laughs> on that for being able to get that out. Uh, I liked the visual there. Um, I think it was cool that instead of going like all CGI, you know, they mm. relied on makeup and props and perspective mm. to give that sort of demonic vibe. But I did feel it was just something was a little bit off to me, you know, and I don't, maybe it was the, that the Algalaith coming out of that footballer, like kind of sort of like pulling himself up out of his body and like breaking it apart, maybe felt a little flat or not as quite as gross as it would be if that were actually happening or the way that the kind of princess was just sort of unceremoniously led away. The demon just kind of standing there. The princess just kind of wanders off. You never really see her reaction to what's just happened. You you don't really get any sense of what their kind of, what the dynamic was. Like, I don't feel like, because initially you think, you know, she's the one who's possessed, right? That's what they set it up to be. It turns out to be him. It's a clever little reversal, but I'm not sure you quite understand how that worked, right? Like when we're out in the hall and Joanna's talking to Rick the Vic, you're hearing like, screams and cries and things like that from the room you don't know what happened and that's never sort of it's never really followed up on so there's just these little elements uh that were parts of the scene that i felt never really came together into a coherent whole Hmm. uh ashley yeah i would agree overall the presence of the princess was kind of confusing just because of her general demeanor. I didn't understand what they were trying to communicate with her character apart from her being bossy royalty. But like with those screams that Sean mentioned, you can hear in the distance. And then the weird, you know, hand clenching thing that Mm -hmm. felt like it was coming from total supernatural strength. Also, why does her betrothed seem so terrified of her if he is the one possessed by a demon and wants the princess in the first place is that an act that that feels just kind of inconsistent and yeah a, a helpful note would have had been her reaction or some sort of weird demand or some more jokes at the royalties the royal family's expense 
I, I thought the the actual exorcism where Algalith reaches out of his mouth and pulls himself out was plenty gross. It was <laughs> theologically bankrupt, but dramatically on point for me. But yeah, it the just the the general characterization of each person in that space was very confusing to me. Yeah, I'll say I I enjoyed I think the entirety of the scene. I thought I almost feel like a show, I almost feel like a lesser show would be like, okay, we got to cut to the princess and give her like, you know, like a scream and yada, yada, yada. And here it's like, well, like Joanna. And I think it's the idea like Joanna doesn't care about the princess. Like once the demon's there, like, oh, she, sure. like she really cares, you know, could care less about like the princess. Cause her main focus here is on the demon. And I just assumed like the reason that the demon decided, like I, at any moment he could have killed the princess. He wasn't really trying to do that. Right. He's trying to, sure. And, you know, if he would have acted in any way that, like, started to harm the princess, like, that really doesn't, that's not what he's shooting for, because he could have done that at any moment. So it seems like, you know, just to have Rick the Vic take her away, it was like, well, yeah, because the demon knows, like, okay, I'm in a bad spot. And the one thing, and again, this is just really helpful from having read um, The Sandman, having read Lucifer, I think in a lot of popular culture, especially in America, you know, demons are just seen as like the ultimate banality of evil incarnate. And I think a lot of these comics give a much more uh, overall, like they just add a lot more robustness to what demons are and kind of what their purpose is and what they're doing in hell. And I kind of thought of that here where, okay, as soon as he has found out his next immediate thing, isn't to just start terrorizing everybody. Cause he knows that's not going to work. And it's instead like, okay, how can I start to be clever enough to get out of this situation? And that's when Morpheus shows up and you know, he's thinking like, Oh, I can, I obviously can't get anywhere with Joanna, but maybe I can get somewhere with Morpheus because I do have this piece of knowledge, something that he probably wants and is able to potentially drive a conversation there. And then I thought it was really great to have Dream commanding Joanna to stop, but he is a he is an entity of of Dream, right? Like he is the personification of Dream. He doesn't have like the power to command people to like humans to stop in the, in the waking realm, right? Most people might, might want to do that because the repercussions, but it's not like you're going to like freeze when he tells you. And I thought that was a nice way for them to demonstrate his lack of power uh, or, you know, his power limits in the real world. Oh, sorry. In the waking world, the Sandman would not be happy with us if we call it the real world. (laughs) Yeah. That I, I did think that was a nice character moment that dream was, at the very least, seriously considering just letting this demon like have the princess in exchange for this information about where his helm is. Like, people and beings are kind of instruments to Morpheus right now. He's very single-minded and focused on what he is. And and I think the show has a really good understanding of where his character's at right now, and 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 has some really nice ways of expressing that throughout this episode, really. I just miss him being pushier. I just want him to just shout more or something or be a little more imposing than just the wayfish. No, no, stop, don't. <laughs> I just would really... But the, the thing that I actually found kind of interesting about their exchanges, and I think it's in this scene, that he references what Joanna's doing as magic when it's a real liturgical rite that exists. So I'd be very curious to hear what other 
you know, I guess Catholic takes would be on that scene because it's like, no, mm. that's a real thing that we do. Like those mm. are real words. That's Latin. That's not made up Latin. That's not dog Latin. <laughs> that's mm. real Latin. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she's she's repeatedly called like a magic user throughout the show. Mm-hmm. But besides these established religious rites, we're not really seeing much in the way of her doing any magic. Mm. Yeah, I kept expecting to see some some magical capacity from her. I was like, no, that's just what a priest does. All right, for our third scene, we are now with Ethel and John in the psychiatric hospital. John tells Ethel that he knows that his father was Roderick Burgress. Ethel explains that she traded the mask and pouch for the amulet of protection. She wants the ruby to give it back to Dream, but John wants to use it to rid the world of the Sandman. Back with Morpheus, we are introduced to the raven Matthew, who was sent by Lucian to assist him. Dream asks Joanna about his pouch and lets her know that they will need to find it in order to save humanity. Ashley, what do you think of this uh, two-parter here? Yeah, so I know earlier when we were going, earlier meaning like probably the second episode when we've had these scenes with John and Ethel, I've been an advocate for them. I've enjoyed them. I've said that I really like the acting involved. I've kind Uh-oh. of changed my, t- what did you say? Oh, here comes the butt. <laughs> Here comes the I know. butt. I've kind of changed my tune. <laughs> I found them really dull this episode mm. to where I would watch the episode or the, the scene and I'd have to go back to the beginning of the scene and go, okay, so wait, what, what was actually accomplished here? I don't, mm. what happened? Why did we need this? I felt like it could have been condensed even more. So I, I found myself not enjoying it nearly as much as I have in pre in the previous episode, mainly because it just felt like they were rehashing the same conversation over and over and over again. I'm like, Oh my gosh, just get on with it. Like it felt like a Monty Python sort of situation where I was just screaming at them to get on with it. As far as the introduction to Matthew, so excited. One of my favorite characters. Uh, I find it interesting. Matthew has to convince Morpheus to take him with. And he's like, I don't know. Lucienne made me, she said you would say not to take me, but Sorry, I'm going to I'm going to be here whether you like it or not. I kind of like that attitude from him, but I do find it interesting that Lucienne is like sort of elbowing her way into Morpheus's plans. That I'm finding really fun. You know, going back to your feelings on Ethel and John, uh unlike in the in the comics where John D is definitely made out just to be like a bad person. <laughs> He doesn't have mm-hmm. any redeeming qualities, it, it feels like, uh, in, in the comic. Here, I think they are definitely trying to convey that he is a sympathetic character. And the reason they can do that is because they have the Corinthian who is playing this role of a primary antagonist. And so since we have this primary antagonist role happening through the Corinthian, I think they wanted to add more complexity to um, John D's character and how they're going to play with that. Um, you know, his introduction in the comic with his mother and then escaping from Arkham Asylum and how that all happens. It's a, it's a lot uh, different in the, in the way they even decide to tell it here. I mean, he is, uh, you know, really being positioned. I feel like to be much more sympathetic as he, as he goes through, which I think, allows us some flexibility as we see him potentially, as I mentioned earlier, like be able to walk through the lobby. Like if he was a stark raving mad going, you know, pulling his hair out and was like half naked, you know, that doesn't necessarily (laughs) happen, but we'll look at that more in in a future scene. So Sean. Yeah. I I agree that 
they're threading the needle pretty well with John D's characterization. Um, and, you know, I also agree that they maybe like went to the well too many times uh, in, with those scenes, like treading water until we could get to the climax of his mm-hmm. breakout because it has to come at like the end of the episode. So a lot of that is just, you know, conversation covering um, somewhat familiar ground before that. But yeah, I mean, John D, he's someone in the show, he's someone who's been kind of manipulated and lied to and spent like his entire life being buffeted by forces outside of his control. And they set that up quite well with, you know, them moving around all the time and Ethel's various boyfriends and things like that. And, you know, I don't know that the story line is enough alone to make him sympathetic, but I think David Thewlis plays him with a lot of sort of tenderness and Mm. naivete and I think that performance really adds a lot to making him a, a sympathetic character. I think it could have been come off very different in a different actor's hands. I think he does a great job there. Sean, anything else on the other half of the scene with the introduction of Matthew? Yeah, well, it's always nice to hear from Patton Oswalt. And always nice to, <laughs> and nice to see Matthew brought from page to screen. So it's like, I have to force myself to not think oh Patton Oswalt's talking now mm. all the time but um you know that's that's not anyone's fault so I, I just kind of push through that thanks Sean uh Ashley why don't you give us your last thing yeah I just had one question about that exchange between Matthew and Morpheus when Matthew refers to Lucien as the boss lady and Morpheus says, Lucien is not your master, but I'm a little confused as to the, um, not to, not to, you know, push my glasses up my nose too much, but the ontological aspects of Matthew or any of the Ravens, like did, mm. did Lucien make Matthew? Cause Matthew mentions, you know, remembering dying and everything. Morpheus wasn't there for that. But it sounds like his first sort of encounter with any sort of authority figure is Lucian. So did how how does how does that work? Well, I think this this is where it can be helpful to backfill a little bit from the comic. So you know what we know is that you know Dream usually has a Raven. That right. Raven is a human that has died. That Dream essentially offers an opportunity to serve Dream instead of dying. So just for, for listeners that may not have read the comic, that's what that's what Matthew is referring to there. He Matthew was a human named Matthew on Earth that you know we occupy with him, and now is serving the dream instead of completing his uh, life cycle with death. I just wanted to I just, plug that in there for for listeners. I just felt like with the script, it was really unclear for anybody who hasn't read the comics what the actual origins or relationship within the dreaming was i mean i think it's it's not terribly clear in the comic either is it like you get that the fact of it but but you 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 struggle to imagine a person who dies morpheus in in the comic intercedes in some way and is like presumably hey instead of going wherever you were going do you want to come work for me right and that's never really been that that interaction or that that decision or that you know destiny has never been really explicated i don't think either in the tv show or or in the comic really Mm. if you want to talk about you know matthew matthew cable's origins in the book he was a 
scummy guy who died in a in a noble way trying to right some of his wrongs. And you get the sense in the comic that that's part of the reason that Dream interceded. You know, this guy who would have otherwise surely gone to hell, Dream kind of steps in and gives him an opportunity. And I wonder if that's something that's going to be fleshed out in the series, either this season or in subsequent seasons. I mean, if you got Pat Oswald around, you don't want to waste him. Like, let's have him do some stuff. Yeah, I I hope that's the case because I think in the comics I'm willing to suspend that disbelief. Yeah, Dream is this isn't is endless. You know, he's got this power that we kind of anticipate him wielding as he will. But in the show, it just seems like this weird power dynamic is developing that is muddying the water some, and I don't think it's intentional necessarily. I do think we're expecting to see Lucienne try to mom dream a little bit uh, for some sake, but as far as who who can do what, what the rules of the magic are, uh, that seems to be unclear to me if I'm not applying comic book foreknowledge. Yeah, and, and I guess really all it does is it kind of reinforces the, the, the themes of the episode like I was talking about earlier, right? Like, can you allow yourself to be vulnerable? Can you allow yourself to be helped? You know, that's something that's sort of played around with in different ways throughout the episode, and, and I think Matthew's introduction is a part of that. Well, I think just my last point on this is, one thing to also remember is that uh, you know, Netflix dropped all 10 episodes at the same time. We're going to spend 20 weeks watching this television show. <laughs> Most people are probably going to watch it in a matter of days, if not one or two weeks, because that's the, the Netflix model. And so it may be that, you know, when they're script writing and putting a television show together, they're thinking, well, most people are going to consume this quickly, right? And maybe aren't going to have as much kind of in-between time, you know, kind of wonder. Because, like, we, we could have just watched episode four, and maybe it's explaining episode four, but, like, we haven't watched episode four, so we don't know that. And so I do think that is one of those places where, as TV watching habits have changed, the script writing and what they choose to tell you in an individual episode have, has also changed. You see lots of traditionally in television episodes, it needed to be 100% self-contained that someone could watch that episode and walk away being like, I got it. Like, that was a great episode of television. But nowadays, we definitely have a lot more where it's like, there may be two or three episodes that combine together complete an entire arc. And you might not have finished arc. You might have dangling small things that in a traditional television show would have been wrapped up in the 22 minutes or the, or the 48 minutes. And I do think that is uh, that is interesting as we are exploring this in that direction. So. Yeah, and Sandman, prob- like, as... As far as the prestige TV goes, Sandman is probably more episodic than most other shows out there. Yeah, I think so. You know, it do, it, it's, it's more, because it's an adaptation, it lends itself more to those self-contained stories. I think this is probably as close as it can, as it can get. You know? Yeah, thanks, Chaz. Thanks. Ashley, you, uh, you paid him, right? Uh, you paid, this was you, you paid my him, turn? Right? Oh, dang. Okay, I'll be right back. I gotta go give him the money. Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right, here we go. Yes, let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Aw, oh, man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? That's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it. Pause it. Turn off the TV. Do you think she's gone? Make a sound. Hmm, I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters! 
join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's Legendary Series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. Dream tracks down Joanna in the dreaming as she relives the night in the club and learns that as she was working to close the portal, a hellspawn reached out and grabbed Astra, leaving only her arm after the portal was closed. Dream lets Joanna know that he can stop the nightmare if Joanna locates the pouch. While searching her office, Joanna realizes that the pouch is with an old flame, Rachel, that she skipped out on. Back in the hospital, Ethel and John continue to reminisce. She then decides to give John her amulet of protection. All right, Sean, where do you want to start us with? Okay, well, I, I mentioned this a little earlier, but the dream scene doesn't quite work for me. You don't like it. I, <laughs> he doesn't like it. Yeah, I feel like I just don't know that it that it was visually dynamic enough or offered enough good storytelling to justify its inclusion. Like I really would have been perfectly fine if they'd relied on, on, on hints on, you know, some sort of vague menace, some sort of more abstract dream Mm. than just a literal memory. Mm. It felt a little empty in the sense that it's Joanna versus a portal sort of, you know, I think maybe if there was like some sort of de- demonic antagonist there, it would have felt a little more interesting visually. But I just don't. I don't think it. I don't think it offered uh, a ton. Ashley, what's your take on this? As someone who has not read Hellblazer, I thought it was fine. Honestly, um, I like getting a little bit more background on Constantine as far as a character introduction is concerned because otherwise within context, what her role is in this general fan fantasy world is concerned. Um, without it, I think you'd be lost. Hmm. I also appreciate the fact that these are coming to her in nightmares. So then Morpheus can travel to her ultimately and find her, even though he doesn't necessarily know where she is. So the fact that she's having these repeated nightmares over and over again about something that has happened to her, I think works well, especially that really gruesome cauterized stump that she's left with that. That was horrifying. You know, you mentioned the, the moral do dubious morality of demons, but I feel like it, it runs pretty flat in this scene is concerned. They just cut off the arms of a kid. Yeah. I'm, I'm and that is horrifying. Ashley. You know, I, I didn't have any, you know, background knowledge outside of Sean what you've told us and um I thought I actually did a really great job of showing us I got to see I've seen her you know summon a you know you know perform an exorcism I've seen her now be able to close this portal and deal with all this you know you know she walks through that door with you know with purpose and kind of does her job and then to see as she's doing her job and I think the other thing is that it feels like in the comic that this was like you know Sean you've described it as like a botched to me, this looks like someone who is literally trying their hardest to clean up somebody else's mess 
and there is tragedy in the middle of that, which I would not call that. I do not think of that as like botched. Like she is coming in to like fix someone else's mistake. And I think this may be a place where maybe background comic knowledge is preventing the story that's being told right here from being told in a way that you're going to enjoy. Yeah. I mean, that's undoubtedly true. Cause it was, it was <laughs> such a significant comics moment and uh and uh you know the character of john constantine in the in the book it was his hubris and ego that led to this a very similar event to what we're seeing here whereas joanna is is pretty you know innocent of any real wrongdoing there like she tries and it just goes bad um interestingly though she is much more responsible for what happens to Rachel. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So there, so there is something there, but I, yeah, I can see. So what it does accomplish, you know, you've seen her be a, a very adept sort of freelance exorcist and you've seen her fail to do what she wanted to do. And you see this part of her past that she sort of covers up with this very sardonic and, and wry attitude. So, you know, maybe it is uh, an, an important part to flesh out and, and develop her character a little bit. I don't think it looked that great, but, uh, but yeah, I, I can see its role in the story. And then uh, did you have any thoughts on the uh, continual exploration of Ethel and John's relationship? Or are you kind of over to this point too? No, I mean, I mean, this scene was fairly steady with, with, what we'd kind of been discussing and this is still in that sort of a bit of treading water phase. So nothing much to add to this one. Oh, one more, one more note on Joanna. I do like how messy her flat is. I did think that was a nice touch. It's very like kind of put together, very attractive woman. Who's like home is a big mess. Like that's definitely a, there's a real life. That's a trope. Thing to, that's a trope, that's right? A trope. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not that rare. So, so it was, it was it's nice to see. Uh, Ashley, let's kick it over to you. Yeah, just a note on Joanna's apartment. I do appreciate the the comment that Morpheus says, why do humans love objects so much? As he said that, I just yelled at the TV, that's rich coming from you, my yeah. guy. Like, that's are you kidding me? Story arc here. Yeah, I was so, I was so pissed. Um, but I did find it kind of funny because she does turn it back on him. Yeah, she calls uh, him but, out real quick. Oh, yeah, and I'm glad she did. And that is what does ultimately draw me to her but um, going to the scene with John and Ethel uh, I felt that this scene finally had some tension to it like all the tension that Mm. I was wanting in the first place Mm. Um, the fact that Ethel dies is a little frustrating to me I was anxious about the development of her character to ultimately be fridged in the end and I felt like that's what happened Mm. I was like okay great so we we got this BA character of a development only for her to, to die in, in three episodes. I hate that. Like, why did we bother spending all this time making her so cool if we're ultimately going to have her sacrifice herself for her son that quickly? Well, remember, um, the, you know, you got to have the woman there to die to push the man's For character forward. development. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, yep. That's, that's, that's the only way it happens. Classic. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, really irritated me the fact that i was bracing myself for it and then it gave me reason to have braced myself for it i was pretty frustrated sure um you know i I really don't understand 
ultimately what her general character or morality like what her motivation was overall because they say it's to protect John but again he's established so much evidence that that has not been the case so for so much of his life so I was like mm-hmm. so then what 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 were you um so it was a little irritating but I do I do find it interesting that she emphasizes that he had killed a bunch of people he needs to protect himself you know, I feel like she ultimately attempts to to die not only for him, but hoping that he'll make the right decision. Like somehow she still holds on to this hope that there's a good person inside there, which also feels really delusional. Um, and again, I just wish we had more time with her to be able to explore those motivations more or re- explore that regret more. And we don't get that. So I liked the fact that we finally got to the crux of the argument. Um but the fact that she dies in the end, I was just two thumbs down. I did think it was a cool death. Like it looked cool. Sure. Um, the aging was done well. And I think, you know, acting wise, they both did great. I I liked, I liked the little shifts in John's character where, you know, you feel very sympathetic towards him and then they start to kind of reconcile and he's like oh i understand you did this to keep us safe but what if we use the ruby to control the world yeah you know mm-hmm. it just kept <laughs> yeah, like get turning that, that yeah, way you get that little like <laughs> oh okay there's a reason you're here <laughs> yeah and I, I think that 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 was played very well all right let's walk into our next scene joanna and dream walk to rachel's flat and joanna goes inside alone Rachel answers the door, and the two of them awkwardly stumble through a conversation full of apologizing interlaced with some kissing. Then, Rachel tells Joanna that she is a coward who ruins everything she touches and starts to disintegrate in front of her. Morpheus arrives and wakes up Joanna, who had fallen asleep due to the effects of the sand. Dream retrieves his sand pouch and plans to leave until Joanna questions why he would leave Rachel to die if he truly wants to save humanity. Dream decides to help Rachel. Joanna says goodbye to her, and Morpheus gives Rachel one last happy dream as she passes away. Sean, I think you're up first on this one. What you got? I guess I'll start off with a a, a little moment I liked, which was the exchange between Joanna and Dream, where they're standing out front of Rachel's building, and Joanna's asking him not to come inside and ends up winning him over by saying... You know, by asking if he has any ex-girlfriends, yeah. which for people familiar with the character will understand that he does have many and they've all gone very wrong. Very wrong. <laughs> so initial observation is that I, I did like that moment. Ashley, over to you. What was your uh, initial take on this scene? Yeah, I I guess, again, this is, an, this is a scene where I really wish we got a more bullying Morpheus. The fact that she goes up alone, I was like, that would have never happened. He would have never let that happen. And uh, and as soon as the door opens and Rachel's standing there, totally normal, I knew it, it was a trap. It was definitely a trap. Exactly. So I tensed up pretty quickly, but I wasn't sure what direction this sort of luring into the apartment was going to go. So I was very tense the entire time. So in that case, very effective, but I'm still missing the more bullish Morpheus sort of 
dictating exactly how to handle these sorts of situations, especially with with where his dream sand is concerned. You know, Joanna just brings a, a really specific energy, and I really appreciate that energy, and it seemed like Morpheus, he, they're definitely playing, Tom Sturgis is definitely playing him more, aloof might be a good description of... Con- Edward Cullen. And I think the, what I'm trying to figure out is like, like why, and I think that it can be a little difficult to, uh, to think back to the first time that you read the comic, and they're just different, like, you just have to treat a TV medium differently, and he is the star of your show and just has to be around a lot more, I feel like. Yeah. You know, and, you know, one of our favorite, you know, Sean's favorite panel from issue three uh, was Dream just sitting in, like, the backseat, like, of a car <laughs> being very passive. And I think it is just very difficult to have a, you know, passive um, a character. And I think that might be sometimes where they're trying to figure out, well, how can we still make him passive and sort of aloof, but also, you know, he needs to care about certain things. Uh, and that is why I'm really looking forward to next episode when he goes to hell, as that is like, it is all driving forward action by Morpheus, uh, which I think will be really helpful here. And, but it makes sense because if you're thinking about it, like he still has zero of his tools back in his possession, and I think that does cause him to be very – he is definitely in the show much more risk-adverse than what he, what he is in mm. uh, the comic. And I think that's okay. I think that's, you know, that's, that's, a, different, that's a different take on, on the character. Yeah. He, well, he's a much weaker character here Absolutely. now, right? Like he's super depowered yeah. and, that's, and, and vulnerable. And that introduces a kind of tension to the show that wasn't really there in the comic because even though he didn't have his tools and he could – you know, he, he needed those to control his realm. Here, it's like an acute threat. Like, the dreaming will collapse. You know, humanity yes. will go mad and destroy itself without if he can't get these tools and rebuild his kingdom. And he can't even protect himself or rebuild his castle without those things. Exactly. Exactly. What did you all think of the dream trap itself? I thought it was so well done because the tension... Just the, 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 for lack of a better phrase, the not rightness about this makeup was so present. I was like, this is not how two exes make up at all. This is not how this goes down. This is not this amicable. Um, so then when she immediately starts talking about, she meaning Rachel, starts talking about all the things Joanna's done, how it's all her fault, and starts crying. And then that tear starts to erode her flesh into sand. Oh, chef's kiss. That was so good. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. loved that. I loved that. It was gruesome in a different type of way. Mm. Um, so I really loved that moment. I did, I did kind of miss the ooze of Rachel's dad on the walls, but, uh, that being said, um, I think the way that they made it more of a, an intrusion horror situation as opposed to a gruesome fleshy mm. horror situation was well done. Well, we know Sean was upset that it wasn't gruesome and fleshy. I was upset because it wasn't gruesome and fleshy. That's very <laughs> true. That's okay. I, you know, but you know, I can appreciate. I can appreciate it as you know. It was a sort of. It's a kind of you know emotional horror, right? Because because it's like going so well, and like she's, you know, you can see Joanna's elation at having this opportunity to apologize and reconnect. Like maybe I didn't ruin this. Yes. Like, 
And you can see like that glimmer of hope, like, oh, I didn't ruin this. And there, I have a shot here. Yeah, yeah. this is and, definitely and, and, more sapphic psychological horror than anything. Yeah, yeah. And so I, so I appreciate it in that sense. Now, would I have loved to see a house haunted by hungry dreams that eat people? Would I have loved to see Joanna in a dream where she's falling thousands of feet and Morpheus needs to swoop in and grab her? Uh, would I have liked to see Rachel's father's innards covering the walls? That makes me sound awful, but yes, yes, I would have liked to see that. <laughs> I think it would have looked really cool. But 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 I can appreciate the more restrained uh, approach they took. Well, maybe that's one of those places where, you know, what, one of the reasons that the Sandman, for 30 years, people have wanted to adopt it to the screen and it hasn't happened is because it was unadaptable. And I think it's things like people look at that and be like, okay, well, how do we take that panel and how do we make it on a television show or onto a movie? And it's like, you can't. Like A house that looks like, like, just think about the show we have watched so far. And then they walk into a house and it is like oozing and pustules and there are like dream hands and creatures coming out. Like, what show am I watching all of a sudden? And I think that, but that is also some of the discordance that you were also feeling earlier in the episode where you're like, like you've talked about on all of your hot takes, like they are just sanding down the edges of this. Right. But it's also that we're not in the late eighties, early nineties. And instead we're in, you know, the, the 2010s. I mean, it seems like it's present day, like the 2000, you know, the, the, you know, the 2020s. And I think that that also has an impact on the, the roughness of it. And just thinking about the television audience that is out there compared to the comic book audience and what they are going to accept in a television show. Cause at the end of the day, people need to keep watching it. Yeah. Well, and I would also say that if it was that much more gruesome and if there were beings, you know, climbing the walls and reaching out for Joanna, you guys mentioned that we have a dream that's far more diminished in scope for the fact that he doesn't have any of his tools yet. I don't know that anyone would believe that he could fight any of that if it were mm, present without those tools, if that's what they've you know, made the standard to be of his prowess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And we, we haven't seen any dreams except for the Corinthian. Like that's, mm. you know, the, the, the dreams are, are all absent, fled from the kingdom. We don't know where they are and he hasn't confronted any of them. So it, it would have... You know, you would have had to do something kind of different there anyway, because, you know, it's a different setup. The one thing I will say is that, you know, we do get this in television shows and movies a lot where the ex comes back and everything's okay and they live happily ever after. So I thought subverting that was was very nice, it was a nice piece of television, even if we knew what was probably going to happen. So we move on to our last scene. In the ward, Ethel ages quickly and dies after giving John the Amulet of Protection. A guard comes in and tries to shoot John. He pulls the trigger, and the amulet causes the guard to uncreate. John exits the building and is given a jacket by the Corinthian. Lastly, Dream and Matthew head to hell in search of his helmet. So we finally see uh, some blood and guts, Sean. Are you excited? Were you excited about blood and guts? <laughs> yes, I was excited about the blood and guts, um, particularly on that that elevator wall. As mm. so, John's leaving. He leaves his cell. Two guards confront him. So first, the first guard uh, confronts him in the cell over his mother's corpse, corpse, and he's kind of exploded. And uh, I don't know if you all watched it with the subtitles on, but that guard was named Sam. They gave yep. a little name, Sam. <laughs> I nice. saw that too. <laughs> so I was like, okay. I, I I was trying to think, like, is that the one who Ethel said hi to when she first showed up? Like, is that why he was named? Mm -hmm. Or 
did the Netflix subtitler just have like an inside track on the info? Not sure. <laughs> but then when he leaves, he's confronted by two guards. And I, I, I thought John, I thought it was a really creepy performance. It was like an effectively creepy performance because he was like had this like, oh, I don't want to hurt you attitude, but like kept coming towards them. Right. Mm. Um, so I thought that was I thought that was properly creepy. Walks towards these guards. They shoot at him. They're also sort of uncreated. And then when he gets off the elevator, you see the elevator just lined with this like sort of viscous goo all over. And that's 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 good stuff right there. Sean wanted a house full of that to be listeners, just so you understand. Um, Ashley, what about you? Yeah, I really, I really did enjoy the uncreating of all of the guards. I agree. I do think the performance by Thulis was really excellent and appropriately creepy because he has this sort of lack of social etiquette or social graces so that he can sort of reason with himself that it's always everyone else's fault that they're dying. It's not, it's never on him. And so you kind of start to see his own internal rhetoric as far as, well, I'm not doing this, the amulet's doing this, but he's also not doing anything, as you said, to prevent them from acting. He's not attempting to explain. He's just sort of, you know, hoping that they'll stop shooting, quote unquote, knowing full well that they'll do their job. Um, and I do love the the gore in the elevator, especially paired with that really cheerful elevator ding. Uh, thought that was absolutely perfect in the most gruesome comic sense. So uh, that was really well done. And I gotta say, the Corinthian, very helpful fellow. He's really, throughout this show so far... I mean, besides, like, the killing people and cutting out their eyeballs, push that aside for a moment. You know, look past your prejudices and think about just, like, mostly he just shows up and he tells Burgess, like, hey, this is what you got. And then he's giving John a coat. And, like, I, you know, I can see why he was, he was a good nightmare to have around. He's very... The man has sexual tension with every single character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's leaning into that, isn't he? Uh, and then we see, obviously, the end of the episode, we have Dream telling Matthew that they're going to hell. Yes, I am very excited to get to this point, excited to see the episode, excited to read the issue, because just as a, you know, to let listeners know, when I first encountered this story, this was what, this was like a big one for me. Like, this was such a cool story in the comic and so clever mm-hmm. and so visually inventive that you know it was probably one i came back to like as a kid like dozens of times mm. probably because you're just like oh man those ideas that's such a good idea that's so cool you know mm-hmm. so i'm really looking forward to getting into the discussion of those next ones ashley how about you how are you feeling about uh dream going down to hell I'm stoked. I'm so, just like Sean, I'm so looking forward to this. I love how Matthew is basically just resigned to uh, going with him. As he said, he's not listening to him anyway, so let's go to hell. I do also oddly like the moment in which Joanna tells Matthew to look after Morpheus. I thought that was a very sweet moment because even she recognizes there's something going on that she won't be able to help him with. And uh, I also really love the moment where Matthew says, if I were spying on you, you'd never know it. Just the confidence he has his own, in his own you know, raven powers is really kind of oh, yeah, charming. Yeah, his one-day-old raven powers. <laughs> 
Right, exactly. You know, he's he's still shocked that he doesn't have arms anymore, but he's stealthy as a raven. And I also, we didn't really, we didn't touch on this yet, but I really liked the confrontation between Joanna and Dream over Rachel's sort of desiccated mm. body. Mm. Um, yeah. I thought it was really great. It was a little more pointed than it than it was in the comic, and I thought that was a nice touch. I thought, like, Joanna being, saying, like, what's the point of you was pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. somebody oh, asked yeah. you that. Like, that's cutting. Like, yeah, I'm not going to get over that for the rest of the day, for sure. Um, and, I'll keep that one in my back pocket. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Sean, what is the point of you? <laughs> um, I thought that was a, a really nicely done scene and and that Tom Sturge communicated the coldness and the remove from which he has started to approach humanity. And, you, you know, mm-hmm. you don't quite know if it's because of who he is and it's his role as this sort of cosmic ancient figure but they sort of hint here that it's really a significant part of it is a consequence of his imprisonment by Burgess like like that damaged him in some way and well, John even brings that up when they're in their apartment versus in the comic like it's never really talked about again no but here so they are definitely leaning into like this is a I mean it obviously was traumatic in the comic book but they are continuing to touch on it and there are more issues where they're going to keep coming back to this it seems like yeah and i appreciate that i think it's a nice touch and it's a good good way to go with it i can say i was unreservedly enthusiastic about the the rachel's death scene and the the conversation that they had over Mm -hmm. very nice hey uh this is jerry from facilities uh chuck you you available down there yeah jerry go ahead i got you hey uh chuck uh how, how many how many buckets do you have how many buckets how many buckets around here I, I, there's, there's so many buckets how many mops do you have i got i got i got four mops you got four mops okay well i'm gonna need you to get three other guys in uh i'm gonna need you in the freight elevator uh we we got some cleanup we gotta do what uh, we got we got a coffee spill we got a we got a, a drink spill something like that yeah it's it's something like that uh, i'll meet you at the freight elevators and uh and yeah we'll uh, we'll get to work okay i can't wait to go clean up this coffee then uh, we should be done with that pretty quick ben and ava had the perfect life do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yeah, sounds like someone fell. Gotcha! Why are you doing this? This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. All right. Well, we got that mess clean up. So, Ashley, coming over to you, thinking about wrapping up this episode, what are your final thoughts, last things you're thinking about? Yeah. So, generally taking the episode as a whole, uh, I think the thing that I'm really missing, apart from the grittiness, the punk vibe that you get from the issue, are 
and this is very odd, but just scenes in the daylight generally. I had mentioned that I missed out on London being its own character with the diner and the residential district um, and the taxi ride. I really miss the taxi ride scenes Uh, and Chaz as a character overall. I think that could have added a lot. But I think there's something to be said about horror scenes happening in the daylight because they're unavoidable. You don't expect it to be daylight when something really bizarre or fantastic is happening. And I think that that adds to the general strength of the character work and the scene work because you can't escape it. Nothing can be, you can't, you can't blame shadows for what's happening. You, you can't have any characters sort of deny what's appearing in front of them because it's in daylight. And I've noticed overall in a lot of shows that are U S produced, but set in the UK that to try to drive this general bleary demeanor of British culture is to make it wet, make it misty and make it dark all of the time. And that's just not what the UK is like overall. Like, yes, it rains a lot, but it's not nearly that. Well, it's not just perpetual night. uh, And it's not always just wet. And so when I watch television that's supposedly in the UK, I just go, I don't recognize any of these places. None of these places are close together. And um, I don't know how many hoses they needed to use to slick down this road, but it's not like this all the time. Uh, So I think I just kind of miss the dynamism that one can receive from actual London uh, and having scenes that are just in the daylight period. That's like, uh, you know, I live just outside of Washington, D.C. and used to live in in the district. And that was always like one of the fun things to do whenever they shot a television show, which is like, all right, how does this person get from A to B? And how ridiculous is it that they decided <laughs> to have that person go? Like there was the new Jack Ryan show on Amazon. And in the opening credits, he like he's he's first in Georgetown and then he's like in Northeast. And it's just like what is your commute, my dude? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. Like how you're getting around, you know? So (laughs) I think some of that can be distracting sometimes. um, Sure. When you're, when you're watching. Yeah. And well, and they're just, there are so many historic cathedrals in London that I, I'm surprised that they didn't use one of those for the setting of the exorcism. Cause that would have been iconic. So I don't know if it was some sort of legal or licensing issues or if they just couldn't, get a date in which they could clear that away of tourists or what. But I I think it's just a missed opportunity. And just like COVID just throws a wrench in lots of things. This is all shot (laughs) during the pandemic. And it's just sometimes you're like, maybe, you know, like they're in a a hall in Greenwich because like, yeah, they can get a hall in Greenwich. You know what I mean? It's just a lot. (laughs) You know I mean? It could just, you know, that's just one of those things sometimes when we're evaluating media, you know, that was produced during the pandemic era. It's like, all right, it wasn't, you know, effing pandemic, as our dad always says. Like, right, like that was, like, it was such a thing that it impacts every, they, they may have wanted to do Chaz, but it's like, okay, that's another actor we got to hire. Then we got to have a car. Yeah. They got to sit in a car. Like, it's just like, it's like, all right, maybe it's just like, it's easier to not have that small thing, even if they really wanted to do it. Maybe that's why I didn't get my house covered in, in, in person's body because they spent that part of the budget on PPE, you know? It could be, right? <laughs> or actually, I think the inside of people's bodies, actually, that's a bad thing. That's like a not COVID-safe environment. That's true. That's so, true. That is. 
All right, Sean, what was your uh, final thought? So, as I've explained, I've, I didn't connect with this episode that much, but listening to the both of you, I you know have come to appreciate it a little bit more, and I'm trying to keep it separate from my knowledge of the series from the books. And for other people who might be going through a similar thing, I think it's difficult, but it's a worthy it's a worthy effort. The effort to do that can be rewarding if you can try to just close up that little part of your mind and appreciate try to appreciate what you have before you and this different look at a story you might love a lot and that you're very familiar with so so yeah i've 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 softened on it softened on it a bit over the course of this conversation so thank you ben and ashley for kind of you know helping me to get over some of that difficulty there well, I think we most We're the recently... midwives of disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we most recently saw this with you know the ur culture that was Game of Thrones, which no matter how you feel about how it ended, which is funny that every time you talk about Game of Thrones, you have to put in that clause. Um, mm-hmm. I I think when people were when it was like high Game of Thrones seasons three, four, five, six, like that the most amazing times to be a Game of Thrones fan. There were a lot of people that I think were originally put out that like, oh, well, it didn't have this character. It didn't have that character. I know when the Lord of the Rings didn't have Tom Bombadillo in it, people were like, I can't <laughs> believe they didn't have Tom. But it's like, well, you know, they're, they're trying to tell a story in a particular way, in a particular medium. and But it can be difficult. I know I think our mom had a lot of struggles when it came to the Lord of the Rings and the adaptation because it was so formative, right? And I think that's, it's where it hits that formative, nostalgia, you know, foundational, you know, cultural piece for people where it can be very difficult to separate out. So Sean, I appreciate that you're growing with us and that you're, (laughs) you're willing to, you know, abide, which is always nice. Yeah. Oh, I also wanted to ask, Ashley, you were a little worried about, uh, you were a little apprehensive about uh, Jenna Coleman and yeah. her role in the show. What 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 did you what did you think? How where did you land on that? Yeah, I I will say that I enjoyed her performance more than I expected. I can understand why they cast her in this role being sort of a timeless figure. And so her having some experience playing characters that that span uh generations um, makes a lot of sense. I, I do miss the chemistry that John Constantine and Morpheus had. I've mentioned this already have with this, this sort of, um, dirt bag kind of character paired mm. with this ethereal being, uh, she was a little more put together than I was expecting. I, and that, I think that's part of why I liked these flashbacks slash nightmare scenes where we see a, a slightly grittier, um, more South London vibe from her. And so now that she's in a trench coat and, you know, is negotiating with the exorcism of Royals is a little much for me, but that's not her performance. It's, you know, costuming and scripting. So her performance overall, I I honestly really enjoyed. Yeah, they did give a little nod there with the coat, right? Like it's almost trench coatish. 
Yeah, yeah, a little bit, but it was just, it it was just so clean. I think that's the thing that I couldn't get over. It's just so very clean. I mean, even, even the the dreamlike heaven that Morpheus sends Rachel off in, they're wearing polos and sweaters, and I was like, <laughs> not my Constantine. Are you? Excuse me. You know, punks go to heaven too. What is this? Yeah. If it, uh, for anyone who's interested, you know, if you want like a very grimy, very punk rock, very political. Constantine, you can check out the early issues of Jamie Delano's uh, run on Hellblazer. Just like the the first several issues are like so they're very concerned with like Thatcher's Margaret Thatcher's UK and mm-hmm. very political and very biting and um, very scummy. So so for those of you who are into that, check it out. Excellent. Well, thanks, Sean, for that recommendation, and thank you for you know all your insight you brought today. And thanks, Ashley. Uh, clearly, this episode fell flatter for both of you than the previous two. Elements seemed a bit scattered. There was a lack of any real terror, some dull character engagement, and maybe a few tired tropes. But there were obviously some points you also enjoyed. Ashley, you found the introduction of Matthew intriguing enough, and Sean you finally got some blood and guts in the elevator. You both mentioned a few visual effects that came across really well, as well as some of the solid acting in this episode. Despite feeling less enthusiastic about this episode, I hope you're as excited as I am to see the rest of the series and to see what's going to happen. We still have the bulk of it ahead of us, and up next, we go to hell. Woo! Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller Only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.